The scripture this afternoon is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the Word of God. Have a seat, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we now, uh, in our worship service, have come to the point where we hear and ponder and come under Your Word, we are mindful of these promises that we read even as early as, as 20 minutes ago from, from Isaiah 55, promises that we've been looking at a lot lately um, as we've considered what it means to come to you, to eat bread that will truly satisfy without price, to drink rivers of living water without money. Um, and these promises of a God who speaks, a God who speaks creation into existence, a God who speaks um, judgment, a God who speaks peace, a God who speaks into the world in a way that has not left us alone, has not left us um, to try to figure out who you are, to try to figure out who we are, uh, but rather uh, who speaks a word that acts in our hearts, that as the promises in Isaiah 55 say, a word that never goes out from you and returns to you without accomplishing your purpose. Um, we, we scarcely know what it is that we're doing here, I think. Um, it, it's hard to wrap our minds around the idea that, um, that being gathered together as your people, hearing your word, um, considering it, could be the very engine by which you change the world. could be the engine by which you turn the hearts of men and women towards you, um, leading us, um, yeah, sometimes towards grief, but it's that godly grief, it's that godly grief that Paul talks about that leads towards repentance and leads towards life, because, because ultimately as we turn towards you, um, we find that we relate to you not as a condemning judge, but as our Father, um, as one who is inviting us into his presence, uh, one who uh, like in Jesus' parable, is scanning the horizon and, and who even forgoes uh, his dignity to run, uh, to run uh, to his wayward children. We've already been through the confession of sin, and so we don't need to um, uh, sit in our guilt at this point. We've already heard of your forgiveness. We've already heard uh, of your kindness that moves us towards repentance, but we're now um, here uh, at this point where we, we, we want to be changed. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present this afternoon, um, that you would tune our hearts to sing uh, your grace and your praise. Lord God, I pray as always that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
Well, this week we are shifting in our preaching. We've been in the Gospel of John since January. Um, we've put that to one side for now, and we're going to uh, begin a summer series now um, in Peter's first letter, in 1 Peter. Um, as a way of transitioning from one to the other, um, if you're not familiar with the end of John, okay, I don't, I, I don't want to I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I would, I would encourage you to read ahead, to get to the end of John. We've been mentioning a lot the, the purpose statement that comes almost at the end of John, where in John 20, he says, the reason that I've written all of these things um, is so that you would believe, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have eternal life. Um, that really could be the end of the book. Uh, it would have made sense, but there's one more chapter. There's this, there's this epilogue. Um, and if you've never paid attention to this, I, I always get the sense that it's, it, it feels to me like John, you know, he's said everything that he has to say. He's even said, you know, I could go on and on and on. There aren't enough books in the world to tell it all. He's come to that end, but then he kind of says, now, I want to tell you one more story. And he tells this epilogue. And at the center of it, um, John 21, at the center of it is this beautiful and at the same time heartbreaking scene of restoration for Peter. All right, Peter who, you know, he, he, throughout his, his life and his time with Jesus, he alternated between moments of, of spirit-inspired brilliance when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the first one to do that, um, and on the other hand, and probably more of the time, um, hot-headedness and impetuousness, and at the end, um, cowardice, as he denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. And after having done that, you can imagine that Peter would be wondering, can things ever be the same? Is there any place for me? And Peter, you remember that scene on the beach, he's making breakfast, um, and he turns to Peter and he asks him three times, um, Peter, do you love me? Three times, one time for each of the denials. Um, the last time it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. We mentioned this earlier in the series on John that when you look at Peter and you look at Judas, in a sense, you see them doing the same thing, that they both betrayed their Lord. But, but Peter's grief is a grief that moves him toward Jesus. It's that godly grief that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief that leads towards repentance uh, and to life. And he's restored. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Now, that moment in Peter's life, um, in some ways, the only way to understand the significance of it, you can see what he does in, in the gospel, or not in the gospel, in the, in the Acts, um, in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but maybe even better than that is to read this letter, to remember that this letter that we're about to read, that we're about to spend the summer looking at, was written by the same fisherman who was hot-headed, and impatient, and a coward. And think about how he was changed to be able to write this letter. 
Let me tell you what the, um, the main themes that we're going to be exploring are. And I'll warn you, these are, this is based on like, uh, you know, my past study of First Peter and, 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 you know, the themes as I understand them now. I just want to warn you, every time that I've preached through a book of the Bible, um, I always learn so much. I always end the series almost with a different understanding of it. It's just, the Bible just never ceases to, to open up its, its riches. So these might change over the next few months. Bradley and I might find other things to emphasize. But as we start, here's three themes, three big themes that are going to come out in the course of this book. One, this book is a lot about suffering. Um, anyone who believes that Christianity is somehow an escape from suffering, that to put your faith in Jesus means a life free of suffering, um, has not really read the New Testament. I remember when I, when I was studying for my ordination, um, I had to be prepared to give a brief outline of any book of the Bible. They could ask me any book of the Bible, and I had to be able to give an outline. And so what do you do? You sit down you know, with your study Bible, with all these outlines, and you just start reading them, trying to commit these things to memory. And you know what happens? When you read just in outline form all of the books of the New Testament in order, you realize it's like two-thirds of them, or three-fourths of them, are about suffering. Um, it is a main theme. Um, what Peter is going to tell us is that suffering uh, is to be expected in the life of a Christian, but that it's not simply an exercise in endurance. It has a goal, and that goal is to bring God glory in the world. That's the first theme. Suffering is to be expected to the end that God would be glorified. That's the first theme. Second theme is, is sort of parallel to it. Peter is going to be emphatic that it is not suffering that can destroy us. It's sin. He's going to warn us to flee and to avoid sin, not suffering. It is sin and not suffering that can destroy us. That's the second theme. And then the last theme, Peter's going to talk a lot about our hope. And that hope is in many ways going to be hope for a kingdom that's yet to come. So in a sense, an otherworldly hope. And yet what we'll see is that that otherworldly hope motivates a love for this world. It enables Christians to live in this world and to love it. Not to idolize it but also not to run away from it, or to fear it, or to simply be on offense against it, but truly to love it. So otherworldly hope will motivate a thisworldly love. Those are these, these, these three themes. Um, this week, we're just looking at these first two verses. It's just Peter's opening greeting. Um, actually, even in these verses, we'll see some allusions to these, these themes as we look at them. But I want to use this sermon to introduce the book. Uh, to talk about this letter. Let's talk about who wrote it, let's talk about when it was written, who it was written to, to try to get our bearings for what we'll be doing this summer. So first of all, okay, who wrote the book? Well, um, Peter announces himself as the author um, of this book. Um, there's not really any reason not to think that that's the case. Um, it's interesting that he refers to himself simply as an apostle, right? Not as, like, leader of the disciples, you know, not as first person to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Nothing, none of that, right? He's very simple and understated. He simply says, an apostle, simply someone who saw Jesus, who was an eyewitness, and who was sent. That's what apostle literally means, one who is 
sense, although the New Testament refers that term for people who saw him as eyewitnesses. So he introduces himself as an apostle. Um, there are some objections uh, to the idea that it was actually Peter that wrote it. Let me just briefly just mention a couple of these. Um, the Greek is really, really uh, refined and complicated. I remember when I was learning Greek, um, you know, there were certain books of the New Testament that were great for beginning students of, of, of Greek. First Peter is not one of them. Uh, this is hard Greek. Um, and so some people have said, this guy's supposed to be a fisherman. Does this make sense? Um, but the solution to that, Peter mentions at the end of the book that he's written it with the help of a man named Silvanus, who actually shows up several times in the New Testament as a scribe. He helped Paul to write a few of his letters. Um, it's, it's quite likely that what's happening here is that the content is coming from Peter, um, but Silvanus is the one responsible for the grammar. Um, another objection is that the emphasis on suffering throughout this book um, seems better suited to a later period. Um, we think that Peter probably wrote this around um, 63, 62, 63, somewhere in that, in that, in that region. Um, and Roman persecution of Christians had not gotten that bad yet at that point. However, when you, look, when you read this letter, what you notice is that the suffering that Peter has in mind doesn't yet seem to be, you know, imprisonment and execution and torture. Um, doesn't even seem to be necessarily state-sponsored. It seems more social. It seems more on the order of being ostracized. Ostracized. I can never say that word. Um, rejected by your friends, uh, by your society. Um, and so it actually fits with an earlier, an earlier period. Um, to me, again, the greatest significance, you know, of, of um, thinking about who wrote this is simply to compare what we're going to read. And again, this emphasis on being willing to suffer, expecting to suffer, and knowing that that suffer serves a good purpose. Not that it's good, but that it serves a good purpose to glorify God. To imagine that it's Peter, the fisherman who denied Jesus three times, who's writing that, uh, just indicates a remarkable transformation in his character, a, mark a remarkable restoration that gives people like me, maybe people like you, some hope um, that we could be able to change uh, in that way, that we could even be changed um, as we read and as we study and as we pray and as we're together. So who did he write this to? Uh, he lists a bunch of communities. He says the dispersion, literally he says the diaspora, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, if you've got a nice study Bible with the maps at the back, um, actually if you've got the, the, the ESV study Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter, right in the introduction, you'll have a nice map. It'll show you where these are, and you'll see these regions are all kind of up in the northeast um, of what today is Turkey and what at the time, uh, or rather what we refer to in, in ancient times as Asia Minor. Uh, this was an area that um, Paul had been to. Um, a lot of the apostles uh, had, had gone uh, to, this, to this region. Um, the fact that it's written to so many different 
regions at once, marks this apart from, this is not like, um, you know, when Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians, and you can tell in both First and Second Corinthians, he's writing to a particular church with some very particular problems, like he knows these people, and he knows what's going on um, in that particular body. This is a more general letter, you know, this is meant to circulate regionally. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a good letter for us to be reading. Um, in the sense that the general concerns of the church, you know, are things that we can resonate with. Um, this is almost certainly a mostly Gentile audience, a mostly non-Jewish audience. Um, chapter 1, uh, Peter's going to refer to your former ignorance, the, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That's probably not something he would have said to Jewish converts. Um, we also know that just these regions um, were fantastically diverse culturally. These were places where all of the cultures of the world were mixing and mingling. Um, it's really fascinating to me how um, as the gospel begins to go out, um, the first places it goes are always these places where lots of different people from lots of different places speaking lots of different languages are going to hear it together and then be sent out. And that's one of the way that, ways that the church spreads. Um, as rapidly as it does in the, in the first uh, and second century. Now let's take a look at what he actually says to them. Again, uh, just, to, just to reiterate these three themes uh, that are going to come through. One, suffering is to be expected in the life of a Christian, um, but it serves a good purpose to bring God glory. Second, it's sin and not suffering that can destroy us. And thirdly, we have an otherworldly eschatological hope, which nevertheless motivates us to live now and here um, uh, as those who love the world the way that God does. So let's take a look. Um, Peter says, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the diaspora, of the dispersion in these different regions, um, let me just talk about this, this phrase, elect exiles. So on the one hand, um, he says they're elect. Uh, it means chosen, right? In a minute, he's going to say this is according to the foreknowledge of God. Um, the people he's writing to, he believes, uh, are not there by accident. They're not believers by accident, and they're not where they are by accident. Um, he would say that they have been scattered. So diaspora literally means, um, well, it's a word that we've taken into our language. We think of it as meaning a dispersion, right? People who have been scattered. Um, you know what it actually means if you look at the words? It literally, it, it, it comes from a root having to do with seed. It's literally those who have been sown abroad, sown all over the place. Now think about Jesus' stories about seeds being scattered, about a sower, right? Think about what happens after a sower sows seed in Jesus' stories. Um, first of all, it's not random. It's deliberate. The sower is sowing seed on purpose. And there's a harvest that follows. There's results. It's for a purpose. Um, the word diaspora that Peter uses to refer 
uh, to these people has that kind of connotation. You are where you are uh, for a reason. God has an expectation of, of a harvest that's going to come uh, from your presence there. Um, you know, again, there's a lot in this letter, because it's written generally, that's going to speak uh, to us. And, and I think this is a great place to start, is to ask ourselves the question, why are we here? Why are we where we are? Why is this church right here on the border of Newton and Wellesley? Why do we live, uh, some of us in Newton and Wellesley, some of us a bit further out, but in, in Boston, in this, in this greater Boston area? Why does God have us here? Some of you uh, are here because your families grew up here. You might have generations that go back. Um, some of you, like me, you came here for school. 20 years later, you're still here. Uh, or you came here for a job. It'd be really fun sometime to get us all around and to tell these stories. To ask each of you, why are you here? What brought you to this place? What's the story? But to recognize that underlying all of those different stories, there's one story. All of us can say we are here because God has us here. And it might be for a short period of time, it might be for a long period of time. It might stretch way back or we might be brand new, but all of us can say we are here because God has us here. And that begs the question of why. Why does he want us to be here? Who are we here for? Um, let me talk about this next word, exiles. Because this bears directly on this question of why we're here. Um, Peter is picking up on some language. He's writing to a mostly non-Jewish audience. Um, but if they knew the Old Testament scriptures, they might ask themselves, how does God talk to exiles? Because there have been exiles before. There have been people scattered in an exile before. Um, many of the themes in 1 Peter, commentators will say, are directly picking up on themes out of the book of Jeremiah. Um, words written to people who were going into or were in exile. So most famously, there's this passage in Jeremiah 29. Most of you, uh, you probably will have heard this at some point. So these verses are pretty well known. Jeremiah 29, 4, 7. It's a letter being written to the exiles. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, one interesting thing about this letter that's being written in Jeremiah 29 to the exiles uh, from Israel to Babylon um, is that if you go back to Jeremiah 28, uh, there were false prophets who were telling the people as they were going into exile, this is not going to last long. Two years, maybe. You'll be there for two years, and then God will come for you. So what you need to do while you're in exile, all you need to do, hunker down, 
play defense, you know, preserve the faith, um, and it'll all be over soon. This letter, I didn't read this part, but in Jeremiah 29, this letter says it's going to be 70 years. Um, which, given life expectancy in those days, meant those of you who are leaving are probably not coming back. Um, your children, maybe. Your grandchildren. This is generational change. And then what God calls the people to do in what I did read is to live there like they live there. To live there as though the institutions of Babylon, the neighborhoods, the families, the gardens, the marriages, um, as though they depend on those institutions and he wants them to contribute to those things. He wants them to live there in a way that builds the city up, um, that, 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 that supports it, that seeks the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Um, this is despite the fact that elsewhere the Bible is clear that our citizenship is in heaven. Paul in Philippians 3 says literally that, our citizenship is in heaven. Um, in Colossians, Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, what we're going to see as we get into 1 Peter, and we'll have the chance to develop this more uh, as we get into the, uh, the, the later chapters. Um, Peter is writing to people who understand themselves to be in exile, who understand themselves to be a dispersion. Even if, by the way, some of them, you know, they were non-Jewish converts, they hadn't actually moved anywhere. Like, they lived where they had grown up. But to accept Jesus, to change your faith, and to come to believe in Jesus, put you into exile. Um, it made you weird. It made you different from people around you, and it meant that you were looking for that kingdom yet to come. And you would say, that's where my citizenship is. That's where my hope is. But what we're going to see as we go through this is that, just like in Jeremiah, Peter is going to encourage his readers, yes, to place their hope in that kingdom yet to come, but to live for and to love the city where God has sent them. The question to us, of course, is simply, where is our citizenship? Where's our allegiance? Where is our hope? Where does our hope lie? Um, it's really easy to make your citizenship here. Boston's a really fun place to live. Um, this is a great city. It offers so much promise. Uh, work, relationships, um, there's all kinds of reasons to, to, to love and to, to dig in to this city, but, but have you placed your hope in this city? Or, on the other hand, um, does it sometimes seem so foreign and menacing to you that you're unable to love this city? First Peter is going to be about that tension. It's going to be about that tension between knowing that our ultimate citizenship and allegiance isn't here, and yet we can live here like we live here. 
We can live here as those who have been sent into exile, who have been sown, because there's a harvest expected. Peter closes his greeting with this beautiful um, Trinitarian formula. And I just want to hit on each of these points briefly. He says, well, let me, let me, let me read the, the, the whole thing so we get the whole structure. So he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, then according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So all of these things um, in verse 2 these are all pertaining to, this is, this, is, this is about how we are elect exiles. We're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. We're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus, for sprinkling with His blood. Um, the whole Trinity is involved. Again, the fact that he says it's according to the foreknowledge of God says none of this is an accident. Peter has fully come to terms with something that he really had to wrestle with earlier in his life. Um, if you go look at Acts 10, you know, you'll see that scene where um, Peter has a vision um, of uh, a sheet descending from heaven, and it's filled with all kinds of food that his whole life, as a Jew, he has not been allowed to eat. Um, and he hears a voice saying, take and eat. And he says, I can't do that. I can't eat this food. Um, but the voice says, don't call unclean what I have declared clean. And when that vision is over, um, Peter connects the dots uh, because he gets a visit from a Roman named Cornelius and he realizes, okay, that vision wasn't about food primarily. That was about people. All my life I've thought of this Roman uh, Gentile as being someone unclean that I can't associate with. Um, he immediately understands God is sending me to those people, not to call them unclean any longer. For him to write a letter to this dispersion of mostly Gentiles living in Asia Minor and say, and to refer to them as the elect exiles shows that he has fully gotten to terms with that. He's talking to them as though they were Israel, as, as though they were Jews who had been dispersed from Jerusalem. Um, He's talking, not, and, and he doesn't even include any, you know, qualifiers. He doesn't say those who have been grafted in or those who were added later. They are simply elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. He says they're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Um... We've been in Romans 5 a whole bunch lately um, because of the way John 7 kept making reference or kept calling to mind what Paul says uh, in, in Romans 5. Um, let me remind you of this. Romans 5 um, says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That theme of the way that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, and that's the, 
that's the root, that's the foundation, that's the fount of this dynamic in which suffering produces endurance, produces character, produces hope, and that doesn't pr put us to shame. That's going to be one of the things that we're going to see um, in, this, in this letter um, as we talk about a suffering, which again can be expected in the life of a Christian, um, but which isn't just a mere exercise in endurance, right? Um, so when we go for this, for, for this little fun run later, uh, it's hot out there. Uh, I know some of you who are into running or into cycling um, know about, you know, suffering. And you know the phrase, suffer fest. I, like on, on Strava, I've seen people post workouts that just say, suffer fest, right? Um, and that's all about, you know, you suffer and it just proves that you can endure it. Like, and, that's, and that's all it is. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter is going to be talking about. The suffering he's going to talk about is not a mere show of endurance. Um, it is specifically designed to bring glory to God. Um, I'll just give you one example. This is from the passage we'll be looking at next week. Um, he says, uh, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, here's the purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the very end of his letter, he's going to say, he's going to sum up all of his whole purpose, why he's writing everything, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's from uh, chapter 4, verse 11. So the challenge to us then is to repent of a view of our suffering that says that it's meaningless, that it's ultimately for our destruction, that we ought to regard it as something primarily to be escaped. Um, nothing in this letter is going to tell us that suffering is a good thing, but it's going to emphasize again and again that our God is so powerful, is so good, that he can use something which is not good for our good and for his good. He can use suffering to good purposes. The last thing he says, he says that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his, with, his, uh, with his blood. Again, it is sin and not suffering that can destroy us. But if you ask where obedience comes from, um, my favorite psalm, I've said it before, uh, Psalm 78, ties obedience to hope. It says we need to tell our children the story of what God has done so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so for him to put sprinkling with Jesus' blood in front of us um, ties that all together. It reminds us that Jesus ultimately uh, is not just one who told us what to do uh, and gave us good teaching or was a good moral example. He's ultimately one who was put to death for us that our hope ultimately is that we are covered by his blood, blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel uh, from, from, from the book of Hebrews. Because the blood of Abel, the word it spoke was cast him out, 
He's guilty. Cast him out. But the blood of Jesus says, bring them in. Bring them in. Even in the midst of suffering that people are experiencing, Paul is able to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I think this is really important. Um, he is not saying, may the suffering go away so that you can then enjoy peace. He's saying, in the midst of your trials, which he's going to be talking about again as early as the passage we'll look at next week, in the midst of your trials, may there be grace, may there be peace. The two aren't in conflict with each other. Um, he's talking about hearts that can be transformed in a way that I think blows my mind to be able to have grace and peace in the midst of suffering, to know that there is a place for you um, at this table, even in the midst of chaos, because this table has been spread for us in the wilderness. Before we come to this table, let's pray together.